picked very wisely in terms of your song selection for the text. Um, We are in Philippians chapter 3, and um, Paul has been making an argument, or, or a plea rather, for the Philippians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for most of chapter 2, what is he's been imploring them, in fact, almost all of chapter 2, he's been imploring them that to walk in a manner worthy of Christ is to demonstrate a unity within the body. And that unity is facilitated by the virtue of humility. And he presents Christ as a beautiful example of humility. And then he presents himself as well as Timothy and Epaphroditus as earthly examples of humility. He is now going to be turning and talking about another way in which we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to be uh, talking about steadfastness in Christ, remaining in him and addressing a great threat to that. Uh, Before we dive into the text, I want to give you an image that I will hope as we go through the text will bring better clarity to what's going on. I want you to imagine, some of you may not have to imagine because you may have had the experience yourself, but that you get a prognosis of cancer. And the doctor pulls you in and he says, uh, the bad news is you have cancer. But the good news is we've caught it early And there's a medication that we believe is going to be very effective. It's a little bit experimental, but we believe it'll quickly and completely eradicate the cancer from your body. They said you need to be careful in taking it and consistent in taking it. Now, how many of you would take the medicine? All of you. Now, now, now imagine after consistently taking the doses, consistently taking the medicine, they, they bring you in, they run the diagnostic test to figure out what's been happening, and your doctor pulls you aside, he has a grave look on his face, and you begin being concerned. And they say, we have horrible news for you. Unfortunately, this medication, instead of killing the cancer, has been growing the cancer. Instead of isolating it, it's been spreading it. It's been feeding it, and now your body is riddled with it. Imagine the disappointment, the shock, that this thing that you were doing that you thought was to your benefit was actually to your detriment. Paul, in this passage that we're going to be looking at today, is going to be talking about something that he had been doing, that he had been very concerned about, very proud about, that he thought was to his spiritual benefit, but later on discovered it was to his spiritual detriment. Uh, So look with me, if you would, at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. I doubt that we will cover all that ground in our time tonight. Um, and then the next two Sundays, by way of means of announcement, we'll have a world prayer focus and then a missions conference Sunday evening, the next two Sunday evenings. I believe the world prayer focus starts at 530, so it's a little bit of a chime change next Sunday. Uh, Philippians 3, 
beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to be transformed by your word. We pray, Lord, that we would come to love not only your word, but you. We pray, Lord, that through searching and seeking in your word, we might find your purposes for us, and that we might be given strength and encouragement and joy to pursue those tasks. We ask all these things in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So beginning in, in verse one we, of chapter three, we see that Paul is a preacher uh, because he begins halfway through the book to say finally. And, and as you all know, when a preacher says finally, it, it doesn't necessarily mean he's nearing the end. It means he's nearing the beginning of the end. Uh, the, the, the term here that, that's used uh, is an indication that he's uh, starting one of his final points, not that he's wrapping things up. He's, he's changing topics a little bit. So he says, finally, my brothers. Notice the camaraderie he has with the Philippians. Paul is their spiritual father. It, it is through him that the city received its first church. It's through his preaching, his suffering and imprisonment even that the church was birthed at Philippi. But look at him. In the, he looks at them as brothers. Why? Because he relates to them through Jesus Christ. And he exhorts them to rejoice in the Lord. And by the way, do you ever think about how interesting it is that the Bible calls us to rejoice? I, I think about this especially as I, I read the Old Testament. 
And, you know, a lot of times we look at the Old Testament and we think, oh, it's a lot of thou shalt not and, and things like that. But there are certain passages that required people to participate in feasts. So it's almost as though they say, okay, at this point, it, you, we require you to have a party. You know, you have to kill the fatted calf. You have to rejoice. You have to have the wine, or in our case, probably grape juice, you know. Uh, they, they command them to rejoice. I don't know if you, you think about that. How many other religions command you to rejoice? How many religions command you to celebrate? How many... Religions command you to love. Here he's reminding them to rejoice in the Lord. Another thing that I think bears reminding us of is what Paul's situation is. We talked about this when we started the book, but Paul is in prison, most likely in Rome, writing to them. He does not know whether or not he'll get out. In fact, he does not know whether or not he will escape this imprisonment with his life. And what's he doing? He's exhorting to other people to rejoice. Now, I, I don't know about you, but seeing somebody who's in a difficult situation rejoicing is pretty convicting. I had an experience um, many years ago. I think it was around 2007. I had the opportunity to go into um, a closed country and do some ministry work. Uh, while I was there, I saw some Muslim background believers. These Muslim background believers, uh, one of them stayed with us. I thought he was a lot older than us, but it just turns out living in that part of the world ages you a lot faster. And he was close to our age. Uh, there was one day where he got a fever. And uh, he, he, he got a fever. He was down in the basement of this building because it was hot in the area we were in. And uh, he was praying. And as he was praying, he was thanking God for the fever. He's saying, Lord, thank you for humbling me through this fever. Lord, I pray that I would repent and depend upon you. Lord, I thank you and praise you who, for who you are. And as he was, he was praying these prayers, I just noticed how different his prayers were than the type of prayers I pray when I get sick. Mine are all about me. Okay, Lord, get me out of this. Help me to feel better. Help this to pass. But he was rejoicing in the Lord. He was praising God for the suffering. Not just in the suffering, but for the suffering. I remember how deeply I was convicted by how selfish and self-centered my own prayers were. Here, Paul, in a similar fashion, is writing to them from prison. They know his circumstances. And he's telling them to rejoice. Now, notice where the location of the joy has to be. It has to be in the Lord. It has to be in Christ. The, the Philippians are beginning to experience some persecution themselves. So, so Paul says rejoice, not in your circumstances, not in the way things are currently going for you, but secure your joy in the one place where it will be firm, where it will be kept, where it will be guarded in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's written this to them before. Uh, we don't know exactly whether this is referencing another letter he's written to the Philippians or the fact that he's repeating this exhortation to rejoice in the Lord. 
but we've we've seen this theme of joy pop up throughout the book. Here he really wants to emphasize it. He says, I don't mind repeating it to you. It's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. It is a safeguard to you. It'll help you. It'll protect you. It'll preserve you. And in verse 2, he begins addressing something that has the possibility to rob them of their joy. Uh, The danger that he addressed is something that robs them from their joy because it robs them of Christ. What he wants to guard them against is a righteousness based in what we do rather than what Christ has done. And what was happening was there were these people, uh, they're usually described as Judaizers because they, they wanted people to follow the Mosaic law and said that, you know, the way in which you have to be righteous before God is by obeying and following the Old Testament laws. And these people were, were creeping into the church and, and starting to uh, persuade people and move people. Uh, perhaps some of the Philippians... Uh, got circumcised, thinking that was one of the ways in in which to be right with God, according to the Old Testament law. Uh, So he, Paul is arguing against these people that are beginning to infiltrate the church. Now, I, I want you to notice, he has a very different attitude towards these people than he does the, the, his own enemies that he talks about earlier. Earlier in, in chapter one, he talks about uh, in verse, one, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, uh, you know, in my imprisonment, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former could proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every weather, way, whether pretense in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So here, here are some people that are coming in that are that are at somewhat rivals and enemies of Paul that are preaching the gospel, and he rejoices. Why? Because of the content of what they're preaching is Christ. Here with these folks, he takes a radically different approach. Why? Because they are preaching something other than Christ. So they deserve a harsh warning. A steep rebuke. Why? Because they have the danger of keeping people from relying and depending upon Christ and his work alone. So he calls them three things. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out. By the way, he keeps repeating. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in these attributions, uh, Paul is is actually kind of... uh, He's he's really um, turning and reversing a lot of the imagery that the Judaizers would likely do and use. Because the Judaizers are saying, you know, the way to be clean, the way to be righteous, the the way to be right before God is by following the Mosaic law. One of the surprising things we we see in the book of Acts, as you you read it, is uh, people always knew a Messiah was going to come. And they always knew that Gentiles were going to be brought into the kingdom. That's something we have promised throughout the Old Testament. But one of the surprising things we see in the book of Acts is that both Jew and Gentile 
have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And, and this was really surprising because a lot of people were expecting that the Gentiles would have to come through Judaism and then through the Messiah to God the Father. But the mystery that's revealed is that both Jew and Gentile have direct access to God the Father through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Here, these, these people that are infiltrating are, are trying to switch that, saying, no, 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 to get to Jesus, you've got to go through the law. To, to get to God the Father, you've you got to obey the commands of Moses. Dogs were frequently in the Old Testament and, and in early, early, or first century Judaism used to describe Gentiles. And, and there's kind of a, a twofold meaning. Number one, dogs are dangerous. You know, this is like a, a pack of wild dogs. You don't want to be around them. You don't want to get close to them. Why? Because it's dangerous for you. Another thing that would go along with this is dogs are unclean. So in, in, in Jewish ritualistic thinking, you don't want to be around them because there's chances that it might cause you to become ritually unclean. So here, this animal that is dangerous and unclean, he reverses it and says these people, these Judaizers, they're the really ones, are the ones who are unclean. He calls them evildoers. What are, what are they trying to do? They're trying to pursue righteousness, but he's saying, no, what they're doing isn't righteousness. It's wickedness. They're evildoers. And lastly, uh, and this is really one of the big clues we have, uh, is is this translation transition rather look out for those who mutilate the flesh and then verse 3 it begins for we are the circumcision this, this group was advocating circumcision what is circumcision circumcision was one of the requirements of the Old Testament law it's with a sign that was given to Abraham impartially to point towards the Messiah to remind people of God's promise that from the seed of Abraham, the Messiah would come. And all good Jewish people would be circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, in order to demonstrate their inclusion in the people of God and, and the parts of God. There's also a passage in, in Leviticus that warns against mutilating the flesh, against making cuttings and, and carvings, tattoos, and things like that under the Levitical law. Now, here's what he's saying. He says that, you know, they think that what they're doing to their flesh is bringing them in a right relationship with God. But really, they're, what they're doing is mutilating the flesh, something that would cause them a wrong relationship with God. Why does this occur? He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There, there were three signs of, of the warning that he gave. And there's three attributes of those who are true worshipers of God. He says, we're the real circumcision. We're the real ones who have the right relationship with God. Who worship by the spirit of God. That is, they aren't relying upon their flesh. They're, they're relying upon a work of the Holy Spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus. That is, they find the weight of their salvation. They find their righteousness in Christ Jesus, not in their adherence to the law. 
and they put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when it, when it says here confidence in the flesh, that can refer to what they do to their flesh. So, you know, literally that would be things like circumcision, which is something you do to your flesh in order to tr- attempt to have a relationship with God or what you do with your flesh, the way in which you live, the rituals you go through, what you practice. Paul then presents his counter-argument to this, and it's a personal counter-argument. He, in effect, says, look, I I know these people are coming and telling y'all to put confidence in becoming more and more Jewish, but guess what? You can't out-Jew me. I'm more Jewish than you'll ever be. And in in fact, I want to list off what my Jewish resume would be and see if you can beat it. He says, I have more confidence than any of y'all. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That was when the law said that it was appropriate for you to, when it was necessary for you to be circumcised. He says, y'all are a little late to the show. Y'all have this happening as adults of the people of Israel. I was born into God's people of the tribe of Benjamin. I know my pedigree. Not only am I part of the people of Israel, I know my pedigree. What's he doing? He's given them the fleshly reasons. Who you're born to, that's something that you have inherently in the flesh. What tribe you're part of, that's something you have inherently in the flesh. What they did to his flesh, circumcising him on the eighth day. Of the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the two tribes, southern tribes, in the tribe of uh, what they would later call Judah. So they were the true kingdom, the the longer kingdom. Uh, The northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria. Later on, the southern kingdom was brought into captivity into Babylon, but it later on returned. So Judah and Benjamin are, are kind of the two best tribes you can be in. He says, look, I'm, I'm of the creme de la creme by birth. He said, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means I've, I was in a Hebrew family that acted Hebrew. I wasn't in a Hellenistic family. I wasn't in, in a family that had set aside their Judaism. No, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were one of the strictest sects within Judaism. They followed not only the, all the Old Testament commandments, but the oral traditions that came down that surrounded the law, that they viewed as a, a fence post or, around the law. These things would talk about you know, how you tithe the different spices that you have or, or would get. They, they would talk about how many steps you could take on a Sabbath day before it would be considered work. They created all these hedges around the law and all these extra boundaries about the law that were even harder for people to follow. Paul's father was a Pharisee. Paul studied under one of the great Pharisaical teachers named Gamaliel. And he himself was a a Pharisee. He says, look, these these little standards y'all are applying, I, I went above and beyond them. What y'all are dealing with is nothing compared to that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He says, I was so fanatical about my Judaism, I started destroying the church. These people that are, that are coming in and pressuring y'all 
what they're doing to y'all is nothing to what compared to what I was doing to the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, now I, I want to take a minute here. When he says righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless is a, a status under the law. And by the way, blameless and, and sinless are not synonymous. So under the law, you could be blameless. And what that means is you have followed the law. And when you've sinned or had sin, you have dealt with it according to the law. And when that occurs under the law, you can have the status of blameless. Now, it doesn't mean you're sinless, but it means you have followed the, the statutes and the rules of the law to attain a blameless status. Now, one of the things that I also want you to see here is that the things which he is describing, most of the things, probably not persecution of the church, but most of these things are not inherently bad. There's nothing wrong with being a Hebrew of Hebrews. There's nothing wrong wrong with being a Benjamite. There's nothing wrong with following and obeying the law. In fact, that was very important for him. Unless those things keep you from Christ. And Paul says these positive things that I used to think were in the asset column were actually to my detriment. These things I thought were healing me and bringing me within, with a, into a right relationship with God were actually keeping me from God. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This idea he, he presents here is that these things that he formerly treasured, these things that he formerly enjoyed, he now counts them as rubbish. What my translation says as uh, rubbish is translation of a much harsher Greek term for sewage. The, the, the colloquial English equivalents I can't repeat in church while it's being recorded. He says, they're less dumb to me. He says, these, these things that I formerly thought were so great, I'm flushing them now. There is refuse. They're that disgusting to me. Why? Because they keep me from Christ. So Paul here presents an alternative. He says, one alternative is to rely upon what we do to gain a right relationship with God. The, the other option is to rely upon what Christ has done to enter into a right relationship with God. He says, and anything that makes me rely upon myself, rely upon my works, rely upon my effort, is a liability, is a danger. It's more, danger than, more of a danger than a pill that spreads cancer. 
Because this endangers not the body, but the soul. And keeps me from having Christ and what he has to offer. One of the things that we've been emphasizing throughout the book of Philippians, and I believe it is a theme of the book of Philippians, is that salvation is from God. And that when we say salvation is from God, we mean that all aspects of salvation are from God. When we talk about the aspects of salvation, there's, there's three that are generally mentioned. There's justification that, for those of us who believe, refers to the point when we believe. And, and justification is the point where the penalty for sin is removed from us. We are no longer under the condemnation and righteous wrath of God. That goes to Christ, who died for it on the cross. And instead, what is imputed to us is Christ's righteousness and the rewards we have in him. That refers to justification. There is sanctification, which for those of us who believe is the process we are in right now, whereby the Holy Spirit's power we grow more and more in our, the image of Jesus Christ. We become more and more like him. And the power of sin over our lives is diminished and diminished. Then there's glorification, which refers to the point when we see Christ and we're like him. When the presence of sin is finally and fully removed from us. And oftentimes when scripture talks about salvation, it talks about this whole range of activities. And Philippians emphasizes that not only in the beginning, but in the end is a work of God and everything in between. Now, this is something that they got wrong in the early church very often, unfortunately. That's why we have many of the letters that Paul himself writes. And it's something that we still get wrong. I was reading a theologian, and he was talking about studying at Wheaton which is a very good Christian school. And he said he saw a poster there that really disturbed him. And the poster said, uh, when you're saved, that's God's gift to you. He said, what, and it said, what you do after you're saved is your gift to God. He said it had a very beautiful picture, but that was some very ugly theology. Because what does Philippians tell us? It says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's the one who started the work. He's the one who's going to finish the work. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us, exhorts us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we participate in this work. We're a part of this work, but it is a work of God. And remember what it says, work out your salvation. That's not work in your salvation, not work up your salvation, not work for your salvation, but rather work out what he's worked into you. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. The temptation in many churches is to start by faith and then keep going by works. Keep going by our strength rather than his strength. To rely upon our, our abilities, our flesh, our, our strength, rather than saying, no, I need to rely upon Christ's work in all I do. Rely upon his grace, not only to save me initially, but to keep me till the end. 
to pray for his Holy Spirit that I might be strengthened for that task. To immerse myself in his word so I'm encouraged towards that end. Another reference um, that uh, reminds me of this point in, in case you aren't completely convinced yet uh, comes from Titus chapter 2 verse 11 which speaks of the appearance of the grace of God. Now I want you to listen to what the grace of God does as it appears. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It says the salvation of God has appeared and it saves, but not only does it save, but it trains. What does it train? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, put away that which is sinful, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. What does that sound like? That sounds like sanctification. That sounds like grace is is not only a work in the beginning, but it is a continuing work in our lives. Saints, I hope that throughout your Christian life that your faith in the grace of God was not just something you started with in the past but it is rather something that is active in your life today, that is equipping you, that is preparing you, that is developing you, that is maturing you into who God wants you to be by his power. You now see why uh, also why Paul has this exhortation to its humility. He says, look, there's, there's nothing really we can be proud of in our Christian faith. God's the one who saves us. God's the one who sanctifies us. God is the one who glorifies us. The main thing we contribute is that we committed the sins that we needed to be saved from. That that we frustrate at times his work by standing in opposition to his Holy Spirit rather than in conformity to his Holy Spirit. We see a, a priority in Paul that he's going to pursue that which helps him place his faith more in Christ rather than in the works of his flesh. He has this because he values Christ. Uh, the, the way it's uh, phrased in the Greeks, he says, for I've suffered the loss of, or sorry, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The way that's phrased is just getting to know a little bit about Jesus is worth throwing everything else away. It is worth putting everything else aside. Saints, I hope you are growing in your knowledge of him. I hope you are searching the scriptures for him. I hope you are praying more and more for him. 
The psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Saints, I hope you draw close enough to the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you enjoy his presence enough that you search and search, you search and thirst for him when he's absent, when you've wandered, when you've moved away. I hope for those of you who are Christians, you don't just start by faith, but you abide by faith. And that anything that moves you to rely upon yourself and what you do, anything that causes you to have pride in what you've done for God rather than what God has done for you, you repent of, you treat as rubbish. If you do, you get more of him. And there's nothing better than that. We'll now sing a closing song about the steadfast.